Welcome to Failing Forward. Today we're joined by Susan Davis, the Executive Director of Improve International, who's going to be talking to us about tips for making it easier to talk about failure and for fixing it when we see it happening. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you introduce yourself quickly? Sure. I'm Susan Davis. I'm with Improve International. It's an organization I founded about seven years ago to try to fight failure in the water, sanitation, and hygiene um, world. I am based in Atlanta, Georgia, and I used to work for CARE in the early 2000s. Talk to us a little bit about why you think it's so important for us to be talking about failure. Gosh, well, failure is one of my favorite topics. I think it's important making the same mistakes. And I say that based on reading probably a thousand evaluations and books and reports over the past decades, especially in the water, sanitation, and hygiene sector. We're kind of making the same mistakes over and over again. And that's why we need to talk about failure so we can start making new mistakes. Um, the more popular term is called innovation. I like it. We need to stop making the old mistakes so that we can make new ones. You were going to talk about a specific failure today. Tell us about what the context is. When I started Improve International, I had been working, as I mentioned, I worked with CARE, I had worked with Water for People, and I'd worked with what was at the time called Water Partners International. So I'd worked with NGOs, and I had worked in various capacities in fundraising and evaluation and programming. And when I started Improve, part of what I was promoting and also doing was post-implementation evaluation. And this is the idea that you go back a year, two years, three years, four years later after a project has been completed and look at what happened over time. The importance of that is that in water and sanitation and probably in other sectors as well, things change. Anything built by a human is going to break and that's fine, but is it being fixed? Is the water system still providing safe, reliable water, for example? Are the toilets being used and used hygienically? And the point of this is not not just to check a box and say, okay, we did that. It is also to learn from it, to adapt moving forward. There's so many failures, but related to this post-implementation evaluation, there's a couple of pieces. One is I don't feel that I did a good enough job collecting these data and sharing them in a way that was digestible to an actual implementer or a funder. And I worked very hard at that. I have a really ugly, horrible spreadsheet where I started collecting lessons not learned. This is where I got the insight that we have been making a lot of the same mistakes as the sector. Part of it is I don't feel like I did a good enough job with communication, but more specifically, I've been going to poor communities where there has been some sort of implementation and I have asked a lot of questions and I have created a report and maybe done a webinar or maybe presented it at a conference, but I didn't do anything to help those people fix the problems that I found. You could say it's maybe not my job since I didn't do the project in the first place, but it is my job and I think my responsibility that I only really recognizing recently that I should have encouraged the nonprofits before I even went to say, what are you going to do with this information. The reason I say that is, you know, we're interfering with people's lives in some cases where the community members have contributed cash to the capital costs of a water program, they are not getting their money back. Sometimes if safe water for a while, there are some studies that show once the safe water goes away, you're going to get sicker. Children who are used to safe water are, and then go back to drinking from an unsafe source are at higher risk. This is not okay. Right now, the way it works is NGO A comes in and builds a water system. Eventually it breaks because 
because of various reasons, there's not enough money. And then maybe a year later, maybe 10 years later, NGOB comes in and says, oh, you poor things, look at this failed project. We're going to rebuild that. And they don't really take time to figure out why. Often that's just because there's not enough time, there's not enough money. If we do an evaluation and we realize that there are problems, what is our responsibility? What should we be responsible for in terms of helping them get the safe water back or to, there is a movement now towards post-construction services and pit emptying, for example, for latrines or and setting up maintenance services or circuit riders or area mechanics. And that's really positive and that's awesome. I kind of feel guilty. I spent a lot of people's time talking to them about what was wrong and I didn't ever get back to them with any of that information and say, this is what's going to happen next. That's a fascinating point that it's not just about surfacing a failure, but making restitution. And in some ways that makes it almost scarier to talk about. I had a boss who used to say the squeaky wheel gets the grease gun is that you mm-hmm. were allowed to complain, but once you did, it became your problem to fix. How would you envision that happening, that doing these kinds of failure assessments or these kinds of post-project, what went wrong, actually had some teeth behind them so that you could fix it? What would that look like? Ironically enough, the reason that I've been thinking a lot about this is that we wrote a report a couple years back on resolution. So you called it restitution. There's lots of different ways to think about that, right? But we called it resolution. So it was guidelines for resolution of problems with water systems. I've done a lot of interviews and research. It's not a new topic. That's why I say, you know, I wrote this report, you know, along with others, and yet I'm not following those guidelines. (laughs) It is scary. Am I dad used to say, my dad was in the army, and he used to say when we were growing up, don't bring up a problem unless you have a solution. I don't think that that's right in this world. I think we have to talk about these problems so we can figure out what is the best way forward. You don't want to continue the cycle of NGOs just swooping in and fixing any problem because then you've got issues of dependency, potentially, or the community saying, well, why should we save our money if we just can wait for the NGO to come fix it. But there are ways that NGOs can work with local governments. I was with working with um, a group called uh, DRI, Desert Research Institute, and they were looking into how to work with the district governments in Ghana, a couple of them, on how to take their area mechanics and make them more effective. And there's some finance pieces to that. There's some data pieces to that. There's this sort of weird virtuous cycle and a vicious cycle, right? So if a community knows that they're going to have safe water, they're more likely to pay for those services regularly. If they are actually not getting reliable water, they're less likely to pay. And it's a pretty common human response. How do you build that trust? And and how do you do it in a way that isn't distorting the finances? This is a big challenge. So it it has to be really well thought out. And the, the whole point of this is that there is no easy answer. You have to kind of talk to people. You have to maybe be humble and saying, we don't have the right answer. Let's ask people what they'd like. And sometimes it's very simple. Sometimes it's redrilling the well, sometimes it's working with local governments to set up maintenance services. This group called RWSN has done a lot of research on the wells are being drilled inappropriately. So sometimes it is an NGO error. Sometimes it's because we didn't really quite think through the financing. We didn't know what the costs were. So it could be communications with the community. And this is a challenge for many NGOs who aren't necessarily working in those areas anymore. So how do you do that? Maybe you can work with a partner. Maybe you can work with an NGO that is working in that area. And that involves some tricky collaborations. And then people say, well, we don't have the money for it. So then you have to start thinking through 
maybe there's contingency funds that you build into any program that you put into a pooled fund. There's lots of different ways to think about this. I don't have the right answer. I Part of what you talked about is the idea of the contingency fund, which we do use, but we primarily use them at CARE for emergencies. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a project and something comes up, there's a drought, there's a crisis of some kind that you can reallocate funds. Have you actually seen that happen with repairing something that we didn't do well the first time out? No, I haven't. I have seen groups rethinking how they approach solving water access issues, which is awesome. There's um, a whole movement, if you will, or a collaboration called Agenda for Change, which is CARE is part of, which is thinking about working differently up front. By doing that, I think you can address some of the past issues. So for example, if CARE was working in a district-wide approach, you know, so instead of community by community, CARE or any other NGO, you could say, we're working in this district-wide approach. This is going to help everybody eventually in this district. And this is going to make sure that everybody has lasting services, that the systems are in place in terms of finance, in terms of governance and regulation, and somebody checking up regularly that's not an outside random evaluator like me, but a local person who can actually do something about it. All of that work is a way forward that is so much better than just doing a project and sh and crossing your fingers and hoping that it will work. In this context, you're talking about going out and doing an evaluation. And we see this all the time of doing some kind of an evaluation where we maybe discover some things that worked and some things that don't. We report it to the donor, we file it in our system, we don't take it back to the community. How do you recommend doing that? What's one thing we can do to fix that problem? It's a very basic concept, but it's the feedback loop. And there's a group called Feedback Labs that's actually collecting a lot of different stories on this. It's really interesting. I like the idea of not just feeding back to the community the results that you have, and you can do this real time. So this is, if you think about, you know, I fly to Ethiopia and then I fly back, so how am I going to reach those communities? That's not the only way to do this. Almost all of us, even if we are external, we're taken there by somebody local. There is a way to do that. You just have to build it in. You have to think through that up front. The Feedback Labs folks have more mechanisms and some really interesting tools on that. The other thing is that there has to be some accountability. And again, this is scary, like you mentioned. What happens if you point out a problem? They, obviously, the community recognizes it. They've known it all along. They didn't have anybody to tell because they didn't really anticipate that there would be a response. Once you set that expectation that there is a response, that's kind of scary, right? How do we deal with all this need? We already have all these other projects and, and activities and commitments that we've made. How do we deal with this? And again, I think we have to kind of open our minds to, we don't have to do this alone. None of us are alone <laughs> in any of these countries. There's hundreds of NGOs, probably in Ethiopia. Can we find ways to work together? I give, I give you this example because this is when I kind of lost hope, <laughs> almost lost hope. This was last year. I was looking at um, healthcare facilities in Ethiopia and Kenya that had had water, sanitation, and hygiene, or some combination thereof, interventions from five to 10 years ago by a group of NGOs. And I won't name any names, but one of them that I visited was in a fairly arid area of Kenya. And so this one was right across the, the road from one of the NGOs' regional offices. I thought, oh, I don't need to look at that one because it's probably fine. It's probably great. It turned out it was was the worst one. And I, 
it really hit home of the director could have walked across the road and asked for some help, asked for technical guidance, asked for money, asked for connections to the local government, something. But they didn't ask for help because they didn't expect it. There's a you know major trust gap there. I don't know if that comes from a lack of accountability or this concept of we were lucky that you helped us. We can't expect any more, even though it didn't really work and it's not what we wanted. I don't know the right answer for that beyond we need to hold ourselves accountable in a, a much more rigorous way. And that's going to shift how we ask for money from donors. It's going to shift how you work. If you start with this feedback loop at the beginning and you ask people what they actually needed, it would perhaps shift the kinds of staff that we hire. And, and a lot, all of that is scary, right? It's organizational ch- change. It's responding to people's needs in a different way. One of the things that I would say as somebody who's been at CARE for a long time is that some of the best successes we see are things where the community first told us you're doing it wrong. A, a classic example for CARE is the VSLA, where we were doing a different program in a village in Niger. And the women in Niger said, that's all well and good, but what we need is a way to save money. Help us do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it has become this global movement that CARE facilitates, and we're certainly not alone. There are many, many partners who work in this space, but was really invented by those women in Niger on the back of telling us, hey guys, stop doing what you are doing and do this different thing. And we see that in different ways over and over again. As when you can create that space, it does make for scary things and having to go back to the donor and say, hey man, this didn't work and we're gonna spend the money differently or we're gonna ask if we can. You know what, we have to pay to rebuild that well because it didn't work the way we thought it would. But it also leads to some of our greatest successes. As somebody who talks about failure all the time, what are some suggestions you have for how to make it easier to have those conversations? Feedback loops is part of it. That's the part about how you have the conversation with the community. What are some tips you have for making it easier to have those conversations as an organization? Like anything else, right? What are the incentives? I have seen a big movement towards people talking more about failure. And my concern is that we'll just let it stop there. I go to a lot of conferences. You often hear success stories. You're hearing more and more about the failures, but I have been encouraging conference organizers to create an entire track that is, here's what didn't work. I went to a thing called Impact Engineered, and it was a lot of really cool ideas and some prize winners and that sort of thing. And I said, I would pay extra for you to have a track where people came back and said, oh, we won a prize. We went and did this thing and we came back and it didn't work. We failed miserably and here's what we learned from it and here's what we're going to do next. That would be awesome. I want to hear what you did about the failure. Innovation and technology is probably farther along in this because there is a lot of precedent and it's really cool to talk about failing fast and failing forward and all of that. But in in water and sanitation, this is a pretty slow, unsexy, dull field in some ways if you're talking about governance and finance. So what are the incentives for people to talk about it? I've been to fail fests, I've been, and those have been fascinating. But what are the incentives for people to respond? I would love if a donor just said, I'm going to give you money, mistake money, and this is going to be for you to address problems however you need to. Maybe it's training your staff differently. Maybe it is setting up relationships with local governments. Maybe it's establishing feedback loops. Maybe it's actually redrilling wells. Who knows? It would be so fun if there was some kind of incentive fund for people to acknowledge their mistakes because they knew there was some way they could address them. It's not about the blame. It's about recognizing this so that we can fix it. By fix, I don't mean the, the direct technical technological fix, but adaptation of some sort of the organization, direct addressing of the problem in the community if necessary. So here's a great example. And this comes from the massive issue. And this is 
pretty much every community-based managed community-based management program I've seen, they the communities are even if they're great at paying their fees, they often don't have enough money to pay for replacement of major parts. Your mention of the uh, BSLA Village Savings and Loans Association made me this. And in Malawi, they tried this and they called it borehole banking, but it was essentially the community peer loan fund. They would put their water fees into a fund and they would make loans to each other. With the interest and the repayments were very high, they were collecting maybe 10 times as much money as a community that wasn't doing this because there was incentive for people to pay that wasn't previously maybe unreliable water service. There was something else there that was a benefit to them. That's a great example of innovation that comes from failure. And I think they did the same thing. They ask the communities, you know, what would you like? And they're like, we don't really care so much about this water point that doesn't work very often, but we would like a savings thing. And they said, oh, what if we combine these? You know, so uh, it was a really interesting thinking there. Incentive. How do you incentivize people to mention failures? And having a way to address them would be a lot of incentive, right? That's always one of the biggest things about any of this, uh, talking about failure, talking about knowledge management, talking about a lot of pieces is if people don't think it's going to have an impact, they're not going to do it um, because they're already busy and there's already too much going on. I really want to pick up on one of the things you said earlier that this isn't just about us talking about failure because it's kind of popular to talk about failure right now. The idea here is that we can actually improve our work. That's the goal of this series. What's an action you'd recommend to care specifically based on your experiences and based on the failures we've talked about today? Oh, well, one of my favorite things that I've been promoting recently, and this I don't get any money from this or anything, it's just a, a cool idea that I came across. I was at the Stanford Executive Program for Social Entrepreneurship. I only mention that because they have a lot of really interesting tools that come from the business world that you can apply to social issues. One of them was called a pre-mortem. This is a concept that comes from the business world. It's been used in the space program and I think even in in medicine. And the idea is you have, say it's a project or a problem you're trying to solve and you get everybody working on the project. This is tougher with international uh, teams, but you try to get everybody in the same room or on the same call or, and you say, okay, the project has been completed. So say the project is fairly well-defined, but it's not fully baked. And you say, all right, this is what happened. And then, oh my gosh, the project has failed massively. What happened? And it's intended to be a creative exercise. And there's actually some psychology behind it. Some study that showed that if you can imagine something going wrong, you're 30% more likely to identify a cause. And so it's very interesting if you can stimulate this creativity and also get more voices in the room besides the project manager, you are likely to surface maybe some very, they might even be a very small technical issue or maybe a very big obvious elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Point of it is to be able to modify the program moving forward. We actually tried this recently over the summer with a foundation and one of their grantees. And it was a grantee they had been working with for a while. So they had some trust based. So we had the funder, several representatives of the NGO, which was based in Swaziland. We had a community representative and a couple of government representatives in the room when we did this exercise. And it was, you know, over a, a kind of a conference call, I think we used WhatsApp because the, their internet connection wasn't great, but we could see each other. And we went through this process and there were some issues that were pretty big. There was fluoride in the groundwater where they were planning to put in a well and they'd known this and it had been an issue already. And yet the project was to drill wells. And so we've kind of stepped back and, and not me, but the, the grantee and the foundation have kind of stepped back and said, what are we going to do differently? We need to do something differently here. Either find fluoride mitigation, which is challenging, or find another water source. So it was a really interesting process. And that, But there were 
were other things about, you know, is there enough money to do appropriate hydrogeological surveys? And so that brings the funder to account. They know about this now that it's going to be harder for them to say, no, this is the amount of money that you get. I like that exercise a lot. I wrote about it. You can find it just by Googling pre-mortem. The word comes from instead of waiting to do a post-mortem, you know, after the project is dead, you try to imagine what might go wrong so you can avoid the problems in the future. The twist that I brought to it was not just the people in the room, but also the evidence from what's happened in the past. So all these other evaluations that I've read and data that I've documented, I can say, hey, you know, here's what has happened in the past with, uh, say, fluoride or with not having enough money, you know, just sort of validating the challenges that they were identifying and maybe pointing out a couple other ones. That's a really interesting exercise. And one of the things it points to is the importance of really having the community in the room and the funder in the room at the same time. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that it's really hard for us to do. And a lot of our grants aren't set up that way. It's a challenge for sure, but it's so valuable. And to have maybe a structured way to do it, to have that conversation that takes a bit of the power dynamic out of the way. I mean, obviously it's still there, but we tried a couple different things about the problems, but we also allowed them to identify them by email. So they could feel anonymous. Then when we listed out the problems, they weren't attributed to a specific person. And it was really interesting because there were a few that were mentioned by several people that hadn't come up in the conversation. Again, the organizational structure or even systemic problems with how we do development, there are a lot of reasons for this, but often the proposal is baked and the community is decided and the technology is decided long before the community has anything to say about it. And then there's a sort of nominal period of community engagement where we say, hey, don't you want safe water? And they're like, okay. <laughs> and we're like, well, well, we're going to drill three wells and we're going to put in five toilets and we're going to train you for two days. And they're like, okay. <laughs> no, they don't have much much of a say in it. And um, that's not necessarily going to lead to the best locally led solutions. The failure podcast that precedes you is actually talking about exactly that, about the proposal development process and how it doesn't always, or in this instance, did not involve enough people from the community. So it's great to hear you echo some of the things we're hearing from different angles. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been really generous with your time today. Do you have any last thoughts? I think just being aware that we need to be accountable to these people. We're, we, you know, all of us are in this because we care about people who maybe don't have access to safe water, don't have access to healthcare, don't have access to education. If we can all find ourselves personally accountable, like I mentioned, I'm not doing a great job at that, but I'm trying to be better about it and ask that question. I think it will help us sort of speak truth to power in a way. If we have a funder that says, oh, we don't want to pay for X, Y, or Z, we can say, well, then we can't work with you because we really do care about what happens long-term. That might help us all shift some of these organizational or systemic barriers in the way that we do international development. The idea of speaking truth to power is something that has come up on some of our podcasts before. It's a really important root, I think, of a lot of the failure is there's this fundamental power imbalance in the way we do work. And it's very scary to say to the power holders, this thing that we promised you didn't turn out the way we said it would. And now what do we do about it? Even if you have a plan, what you do next, you risk that relationship and you risk that funding. And that's a very scary thing. I'm stealing this from somebody and I can't remember who, so I apologize if they hear this, but I had somebody say, so you're talking to the donor, for example, and this could be, you know, head of a foundation or just an individual. And you say, imagine that this is your child drinking this water. He was actually saying that the person I was talking to, if we had all of these donors take their children and had them drink the water or use these toilets, everything would change (laughs) about how we work. 
Thanks so much for joining us. We have new episodes of Failing Forward coming in the new year, and I hope you all have happy holidays.